Welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, we talk about plants and pipettes, things like that. I'm Tegan. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yoram. Uh, Yoram, let's banter. <laughs> Did you watch Taskmaster? I didn't. Did they steal my line? <laughs> no, they always like to have the banter section at the beginning of the ah, show. Okay. Um, and I have seen it like before at some point, so maybe I just like stole it, internalized it, and claimed it as my own. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. They have like 14 seasons now, um, or 15, I think. It's the 15 is currently on TV. 14 is slowly being uploaded to YouTube, and I watched like the 13 previous seasons all in order. Um, okay. I it's it's my favorite piece of television I think ever. What about um, Bake Off? You used to be loyal to Bake Off. Bake Off is really good, but like it's it's not as entertaining and fun as Taskmaster because Taskmaster has this like comedians weird, and silliness yeah, and silliness and weirdness to it, and it's at the same time like they they take it seriously, but it very obviously is not a serious thing. But they're not, I don't know, like it's this British way of of approaching like also like self deprecation that I think no other nation has mastered in the same way, that it's so entertaining and that people can be at the same time full of themselves, but also making an absolute fool of themselves. Um, and it's so so fun to watch. Like, in, I, I could never imagine, like, a German show pulling the same, like, like, hitting that sweet spot, right, where it's not just, like, demeaning or making fun of someone um, and also not just, like, showing how great someone is, but, like, hitting that spot where you sort of have respect for them but also lose all respect for them <laughs> it's like but also all the contestants are comedians as well right yeah. so like they're partially playing but there's like there's two wins there so you play to win the task but you also play to win the lols and sometimes winning the lols is like deliberately doing the task bad or like doing it more chaotically so yeah. i think there's also this like element where yeah it's an interesting competition at least yeah what, sorry, Yaron, what have you done in the last two weeks apart from watch 14 seasons of Taskmaster? I mean, that's that's an ongoing project I do like on the side when ah, I do the dishes commitment, and stuff. Long-term commitment. Um, I have a pool now that I set up. Um, is it just like a wet spot in the garden or is no, it a legit no, it's pool? Like, it's like a legit pool and like we got it for free on like a marketplace thing. It's like Facebook marketplace, but more localized thing in your neighborhood where like somebody is like hey i have a pool to give away for free to somebody near me and um we said yeah let's we we want to try one um let's let's get it uh we had to rent a car picked up the pool for free from from a very nice couple set it all up it was like it took like three people to set it up because it's like big it's like over three and a half meters in diameter uh one and a half meters in height um so a fairly large thing and then afterwards looked up and it's like hundreds of euros worth in pool equipment and we just got for free and now we have like this massive tank in the in the in the garden um and yeah, it's not yet full with water uh, because of the kids. We keep it at like a lower level. But now like I have to look into all of like the pool maintenance stuff. I never thought that's something I have to deal with. Like, You're a pool boy now. Chlorine tablets and water pumps and filter sand and skimmers and play like like uh, covers and lots and lots of stuff that you have to think about when you suddenly have a free pool in your garden <laughs> well it's it's so much more work than just like having like a little thing with a bit of water in it um but yeah but now i officially am a pool owner and cool i'll be i'll be in berlin sometime in the next few weeks so just <laughs> yeah keep it in mind now i know to bring my bathers good yeah yeah um 
Yeah, and I hope it, it it heats up until then. It's it's quite cold now. I think I had like 12 degrees when the water came straight from the pipe. So, I mean, this cold bathing is also supposed to be invigorating, right? It's good for your yeah, something I, something. I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> no, it's also just awful. And I also don't believe that as a scientific fact that it's good. It's one of those things where they're like, this really wakes you up and makes your body feel more alive. But it's basically because your body is scared that it's dying. So like your heartbeat goes up and everything. And yeah. <laughs> just, not sure it's really scientifically accurate as a thing. It's a massive stress and, and like a uh, flight response that your body's just like, oh no, we have to survive this. What have you been up to? Oh, speaking of flight... I flew over some beautiful cliffs, or I mean, <laughs> so my, my boyfriend's like, hey, I really want to go on a like a hike kind of thing, but we haven't been, we haven't, we've been pretty lazy. We haven't been like hiking for a while. So he's like, you know what? We'll just do a, a walk. It'll be like a long walk, but it'll be more like a walk. It won't really be, it's not going to be a mountain. It's not going to be hills. It's going to be like very flat. And it's like, let's go to this beautiful place. It's called the Seven Sisters. And I looked it up and it was super beautiful. It's like super beautiful, really, really flat. Turns out the seven sisters are all hills. Each of them, each seven of them is hills. And in fact, there seems to be eight of them, which I didn't really work out. Like the Wikipedia is like, there are seven sisters, but also an eighth one because of, I don't know, erosion or something, which also confused both of us. Um, so I went for a walk on some hills, which was actually really amazing and not too strenuous. And it was really a walk, not a huge hike. Um, but it's these chalk cliffs that they have on the south of England. So really stunning views as you go across. We got like nice weather. I managed to get sunburnt. Woohoo. Um <laughs> we I yeah mistakenly understood my sunscreen needs in the context of my boyfriend's sunscreen needs, which he <laughs> is not the same skin color as me. <laughs> he does not have the same sunscreen. I think I've always been like very smug about like I'm fine. I can't burn. It's fine. It's Europe. It's not Australia. I'm fine. Um and yeah, wait till everybody else puts sunscreen on, and that was not the right choice here. Um, <laughs> but it was beautiful. It's really lovely. Um, and now I will try to walk around more of this weird island that I'm living on. And I did that. And then also the day before, we went to look around Chelsea, which is kind of a posh suburb in London, because they have something that's called Chelsea in Bloom going on at the moment. So they basically, actually, what they have is they have the Chelsea Garden Show, which is like this huge internationally famous garden show. I did not realize that was happening, so <laughs> did not buy tickets to the actual event. But like as a kind of sideline to the event, the suburb sort of all of the shops in the suburb put these floral decorations up. So they have a theme and this year the theme was movies. Um, so all of the shops are trying to compete with each other to have like a certain movie theme represented in floral form. Um, so there was like a T-Rex eating somebody from a toilet. So there was like this Jurassic Park reference. There was like the Jungle Book. There was some Wizard of Oz stuff. It was like just really cool. So it was kind of nice to wander around um, the suburbs, see lots of pretty flowers and enjoy that. And also find out what my favorite plant is this week. <gasps> what a sneaky transition. <laughs> I already had like a transition lined up from the White Cliffs, but... I'll use that later. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite plant. So what is your favorite plant? Well, actually, my favorite plant this week is not really my favorite plant, but it's the best plant this year. So this flower show in Chelsea, every year they sort of give plant of the year. And they're like, this is the plant. This is the plant of the year. And it's Agapanthus blackjack. And then it has D-W-A-G-H-B-O-2 
BY, I don't know. Lots of letters and some numbers after it, which is basically, I think, one of the cultivar signs to it. And it's basically an agapanthus, so it's a quite a common flowering plant you might find in the garden. And the special thing about this is that it has very large flowers, lots of flowers, and most impressively, probably you can guess from the name, the flowers have a very dark color. So they've got these purpley black striped flowers. Um, and this is something that we've discussed previously on the podcast quite often. We're a little bit obsessed with this. These purple colors are valuable as far as like they're harder to make. Um, it's more expensive for the plants. So it's kind of like a, and I think anything that goes towards black in the floral world, we're pretty often impressed by that, I would say. So I'm guessing that's why it won. It's it's big. It makes lots of blooms. It's pretty. Um, yeah, so that's that's the best plant this year. All the other plants are not as good. Um, it's Agapanthus blackjack, who is the best. Yeah, I'm just looking at it. It's really uh, very purple. Like, it's not the, the one that I'm seeing here. It's not, like, fully black purple. Like, on, on some, like, when the... The, the flower buds are still closed. They resemble more black color, but um, yeah, it's 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 very pretty. It makes like these round balls of flowers, like of florets together, or I don't know, inflorescences. Look, look. To be honest, when I saw them announcing that it was the winner, I was like, "Are you ah! kidding me? Have you seen ferns?" <laughs> but that's the choice they've made this year, and I support them. I guess they're experts. I um, guess. <laughs> It's fine. It's a fine flower. It's it's whatever, guys. Well done, Agapanthus Blackjack. You're probably the rightful winner. And no ferns or mosses were robbed in this election. Yeah, just you saying like the, the flowers are almost black and that's interesting reminds me of that question that we answered like a long time ago about why plants are not just black when they like to absorb sunlight. Um, and now they know that if they were, they would win a competition. <laughs> yes, maybe that's They might have more motivation to try to be more black. <laughs> yeah, let's let's breed some like truly black plants um, that absorb a hundred percent of the light, <laughs> and then get incredibly photo stressed all the time. But uh, they look very cool and win all of the prizes. I actually do wonder what the criteria for getting in this competition. Like, it's the best plant, right? But I, I didn't, I really didn't look into this much further. What what are the criteria for even getting entered into this? I guess it has to be something that's grown that it doesn't look like it's newly developed because it seems like i can buy it from a, a flower shop so it's not like a super new cultivar but do they consider flower like non-flowering plants do they consider a moss would they say hey that's a really nice liverwort like it's i d there must be some like weird meta things um going on because if you if you think about like all of like the bird of the year the plant of the year the, the whatever <laughs> of the year like that you, you don't you can't have like objective bird criteria or in like the amphibian of the year, the earthworm of the year. Um, it's like, it's just like some 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 association that makes something up to get some publicity for something for for usually a good cause, like with the birds. Firstly, it looks like bird of the year only exists in New Zealand, and secondly, I am googling him. It is the rock wren, and he is darn gorgeous. So, well deserved, I would say. It also exists in Germany. It's the Braunkehlchen. It's like the a robin, but brown. <laughs> I mean, it's no rock run. And but th this is like from a German like nature protection agency, and I think they just held like a vote, like a, a poll, and then people voted for that bird for whatever reason. 
um and like the field sparrow like one of like literally the most common bird um is second place so <laughs> I, but like I, who nominates it the bird itself like is it his friends like who's saying hey I, I, this I, is the one anyway um that was my favorite plant today <laughs> good um i have i have something um that like no i'm not trying to to <laughs> do the segue now from the white cliffs Ow. that i announced before but it's it's related to that so like the white cliffs um that you visited um are made of tiny like they they originated by deposition of uh creatures in in the ocean coccolithophores um and they're just like some part of like the phytoplankton and another part are diatoms um they also make up massive amounts of biomass on the ocean floor um like now i forgot the exact number but they like like a very thick layer of dead diatoms are on the ocean floor um and yeah, Tegan, do you actually know what diatoms are? Because I always, like, I had to look it up. I always just talk about them as if I know. There are tiny little Christmas ornaments that live in the sea. So they're basically these, like, microalgae things, but they're the diatoms are defined as having this kind of, like, silica, so, like, this kind of glass casing mm-hmm. or, like, shell, um, which makes them really beautiful to look at under a microscope. And they, yeah, they make like all of these geometric shapes and they are one of the, like belong to the most like biomass wise productive um, organisms uh, or, or group of species on the, on the, on the earth. They like 20 to 50% of the oxygen produced on the planet each year uh, is made by diatoms in the ocean. Uh, so they are incredibly important. Uh, they, um take in and i'm just quoting from wikipedia here like 6.7 billion tons of silicon each year to make their little shells and then they sink down with uh when when they're dead and yeah and it's like 800 meters thick layer of dead diatoms on the ocean floor um so fairly important incredible like and also very diverse group of species and um today i'm talking about a paper that uh looked at uh how what makes them special in their oxygen production? And to understand that, the researchers focused on a protein that's called uh, VHA, the V-type H plus ATPase. Um, so ATPase means it's it splits ATP and takes the energy from ATP. Um, and H plus means it's a proton pump. And the V-type is just a specific type um, from like different... Uh, proton pumps so in in the end it's a pump that puts protons across a membrane and uses the energy in, stored in atp to do that it's pretty much like a reverse atp synthase um, and when you look at the structure it actually looks like atp synthase i saw the picture in the in the paper and was like what, what are they looking at atp synthase did i get something wrong but no it's like structurally it's very similar but it sort of runs in reverse where atp synthase takes a proton gradient and uses the energy from the proton flow to make atp this thing uses the energy from ATP to pump protons um, across a membrane. And you find these uh, VHAs in pretty much all organisms everywhere. Um, whenever you need to control the pH in a, in a lumen, so in like a membrane compartment, there's probably some like VHAs involved there that pump protons in there to acidify it. So make it more acidic um, and create like regulate the pH that way. Like you find them in, in the kidneys of humans, you find them in corals, you find them in plants and in phytoplankton as well. And 
in diatoms, there's something special about them that they have around the chloroplast that they have, they have another membrane around it. So it's not just like the naked chloroplast floating in the cytosol. They, it's also wrapped in another membrane. And in that membrane is what the researchers found now is this like v, uh, v type H plus ATPase, this VHA is sitting there pumping protons in like around the chloroplast. And that's um, actually very cool because uh, this very acidic environment um, takes inorganic soluble carbon compounds in in the the cytosol or in this lumen and converts them into co2 in a sort of like inorganic chemistry reaction because it's just like very acidic and then it creates co2 and then that's that's exciting for chloroplast to have lots of co2 so in the end it's like the the reaction when you think about like baking soda and vinegar where you have like an acid that reacts with an inorganic carbon rich compound and then makes co2 in water and this is pretty much what's happening there as well um i mean it's not like a powder that they're dissolving but like they have s dissolved like hydro uh, hydrogen carbonates um uh, hydrocarbonates and other things that then can react and form the CO2. And then where the chloroplast is, there's no CO2. So this is a carbon concentrating mechanism that's relying on that pump. Um, and then that the, the chloroplast can fix that carbon and then also produce more oxygen. And the researchers figured out that when they blocked specifically this VHA with a, with a chemical compound in the diatoms, they could knock out just the VHAs uh, in their activity. They would lose like a significant portion of oxygen production from these diatoms. And then they did some calculations and they figured out that like up to 10% of all the oxygen in the atmosphere is linked to that reaction of that one enzyme. Um, when it's not not there, the diatoms are that much less efficient that it would result in like 10% less oxygen in the air. Um, and that in itself is, is quite cool. They could also show that like with the emergence of diatoms in, in the past, like in on evolutionary scale, that also led to a huge increase in oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, and this like additional membrane, which I also found very cool, and this like whole thing, why why do they have this membrane with these these uh, proton pumps sitting in it? Is probably a, a, rem a remainder remi remaining thing from the endosymbiosis. So they try to digest the bacterium that they were taking up by pumping uh, protons in there and sort of like degrading it with the, like the strong acid. And then it's something failed, and instead they created uh, a carbon concentrating mechanism that made the, the like the early like it wasn't yet a chloroplast, the cyanobacterium made it work much better because suddenly it had all of the carbon dioxide, and that led to then the coevolution and to like stabilize that reaction uh, that that relationship between the the cyanobacterium that it engulfed and like this this early eukaryote and then creating these diatoms from it so all because of this like weird little proton pump uh, that you find everywhere that has like such a massive influence on like the evolutionary uh, effects of the endosymbiosis the oxygen production and even to this day like and i think in the press release that i read about this they said like one in ten breaths you take is powered by this uh, <laughs> this proton pump. It was that one. <laughs> exactly. That's thank you, proton pump. <laughs> it's a very dramatic way of wording it. So it's just in the diatoms then. Everything they didn't find in anything else. I mean, it exists in other things, and to do this acidification, but the the carbon concentrate mechanism seems to be specific to these diatoms. Like you can't find them in other green algae, for example, because they lack these mm. additional membrane. The secondary membrane. Okay. 
Very cool, huh? Yeah. Was that your paper of the week? That was sort of a paper of the week. I don't <laughs> think, like, I, I didn't read, like, too much into the methods that it really justifies being a paper of the week. But this is my, my bigger paper that I found quite exciting. I, I, I By now, I, what I should say now as well is what the paper is and who it's from. It's called <laughs> The V-Type ATPase Enhances Photosynthesis in Marine Phytoplankton and Further Links f- uh, Phagocytosis to Symbiogenesis by Daniel Yi at al published in current biology just yesterday um <laughs> the paper actually i wanted to talk about is one that is not released just yesterday but is in fact released a little while ago um actually in 2019 so ooh, we're getting old now um but i just found out about it while i was randomly looking at other things and i think it links up with a topic that yaron was interested in for a little while he wrote a post on the blog a couple of years back about how you can tell when trees are dying i think there was something like that like what's the the turnaround point or if plants get drought if trees get drought stressed what's the the point of no return something like this i Um, I remember vaguely something about that but yeah (laughs) cool (laughs) so please don't ask me (laughs) what the point of no return was that's fine um this is actually looking at tree rings so these are these kind of the woody tissue the stem sort of of the plant you get these rings that grow basically every year and you can count the rings and work out how many years old the plant is um and you can also tell things from like the thickness of the ring you can tell about the conditions um that the plant experienced during that phase of its life so the authors of this study they use sort of ring width data from almost 10,000 trees? No, like 3,000 dead trees, and that's key, as well as 4,400 or so living trees. And this was like taken globally, so they had 190 sites across the world um, that they took this data from. And they wanted to actually understand what you could read, like what information you could get from the rings of the trees about how likely the plant was to die, basically, or how that linked up to the, the death or lack of death of the plant. So they compared the plants that died with plants that survived um, after certain mortality events. This can be like a a mass drought or something, Um, not like a human coming and chopping them down mortality, but, you know, something a little bit more natural probably. Um, And they were looking to see what the patterns are. Are there any signs in these plants? And they found that for gymnosperms, there was an increase in the variability of these rings. So like year to year, the rings have different widths, And as the tree got closer and closer to death, basically, it had this increase in the year-on-year variability, um, as well as decrease in the synchrony of the growth um, across the trees. And that was seen basically in the last 20 years of the plant's um, Mm -hmm. life, regardless of of what the cause of its death was in the end. so they get sort of out of sync or it's like it's all a little bit messy with like the amount of growth that happens and when that growth happens. And is that... And like is how that much they of... grow in one year compared to the previous year. So they're not syncing up and they're not like matching their own previous data, basically. Yeah. And is um, that is that is that a cause for it? So do they sort of get... Because they grow so slowly, they sort of get messed up a little bit and then that eventually increases in some sort of death? Or is it... Just, just the thing that kills it just produce like 
I don't. So they they didn't they couldn't tell cause. I mean, they were doing this kind of comparative study, so they're looking at correlation and stuff like that. But they're basically what they said it is is probably that as like basically the plant is getting jankier with age and it's like having this alteration in its ability to allocate its carbon and like have the proper economy happening across the the tree itself. So like maybe it's also like not photosynthesizing it's, it's not as healthy as it was basically and it kind of to me it sort of seems like old age it's it's getting a little bit less great at doing things maybe some years are better some years your hip goes out like it's a little bit of this kind of mm-hmm. wobbly wobbly we're getting old feeling that the plants have about 20 years before they die apparently or like within that last 20 years um of their life what was interesting was that this was seen for gymnosperms but it wasn't seen for angiosperms and again, the authors propose that this might just be because angiosperms have a higher capacity to recover from things like drought. So they're just a bit more resilient and a bit better at fixing things um, when they go bad, but unclear. Um, but yeah, they did say that this was something that could potentially be used as an early warning. Um, it's already known that the the growth rate itself does decrease a bit as the plants get older. So you get this like plateauing anyway. Um, but they're saying this is another thing that you could potentially use to understand if your gymnosperm is getting a little bit on in its years. Mm, yeah, yeah, it could be very interesting as a monitor thing. Um and yeah, you can like non-destructively take these samples nowadays. Like you can take like like a drill sample and then still count the rings without chopping down the entire tree. So it's not just something you can do post-mortem. Um, yeah, but really cool. I should mention that is called Early Warning Signals of Individual Tree Mortality Based on Annual Radio Growth. And it came out a few years ago, 2019, in Functional Plant Ecology. And it came out a few years ago in 2019 in Frontiers in Plant Science. My next story is something that we've touched on uh, quite often in the past, and that's plants' response to touch. And they... (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Deegan. Um, They... We know we know from like past studies, and we've talked about this on the podcast, and I think also in writing on our blog, um, that plants, like we've recently in the last five-ish years figured out that plants react to touch. Um, there have been like things where you had like a motorized brush going over some ar- trays of Arabidopsis and they would measure responses from them or um, researchers t- touching them. It was There was one where there was just like a, a PhD student stroking them with a paintbrush, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, with mm. stroking with a paintbrush, there were some things that we also talked about where like ca- the, the vibration from caterpillars uh, oh, could yeah. be sensed by the plant uh, based on... I remember on... some wind stuff as well. Yeah, so there's been like lots and lots of... Uh, ways people were looking into this like what do plants do when you touch them i mean obviously we always think about stuff like um the the mimosa plants or the the carnivorous plants that the that have the traps that close when they're touched so there's lots and lots of research looking into how how they um react to that and now researchers have uh done another set of experiments they attached very tiny glass rods like the size of a human hair i think was approximately the dimensions of it uh to pavement leaves so the leaves in in a in a cell pavement cells in a leaf and then wiggled them and touched them and measured the response with a newly developed um, calcium sensor that has been like uh, published uh, in in recent years so now they couldn't sense in under a microscope uh, visualize the calcium signals that are emitted by the by the cell. 
So these pavement cells are in the epidermal layer. So it's basically the skin of the, the plant yeah. leaves that they're gently caressing with, with the glass needle. Yeah. Um, and I found it incredible because like where previously like with the brush, while it's still a, a weak touching, it's still more extreme than literally having a single piece of glass rod that's pressing on one cell. But with that, they were able to increase the pressure inside one cell and then measure what the response is. And they measured these calcium waves and they could see that there were like slow calcium waves pulsing out of the area that's touched for like five to six minutes um and this tells the plant like there is an increase in pressure there something's touching me on that on, on that spot so that was like very cool like just like from the experimental point of view but nothing very new like we know that calcium waves are related to like this touch response like that's a way how the plant can tell the rest of the 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 plant that there's a touch happening there but then they let go and they saw a different kind of calcium waves, fast waves pulsating out of the spot. So when the pressure decreases from letting go, that's also sensed by the plant. So it cannot only tell when it's touched; it can also be, uh, it can also tell when it when it touches over, when it stops. And that's something new and very cool and exciting, um, because this shows that plants have like a very like complex way of realizing how they're touched and like we don't really understand yet how they what they do with these signals like how what what are the reactions from the plant from not being touched anymore but we just know that they are able to sense and they dif differentiate in the response based on the pressure and it's all based on like the internal pressure on these cells so they could they had a different like they attached the, the rods in a different way to increase the pressure i think they even poked in there and then like they they pumped a little bit of liquid in there and removed a little bit of liquid to to change the pressure inside the cell and they could still see these responses so it's, it's they could literally tell that it's it's a pressure thing um and that's really cool also mechanistically because they like the plants don't have a nervous system they don't like humans or like animals they they need specialized cells to sense this and to transmit the signals and plants can just do this all over their their body all over their organism wherever they can sell sense a differential in pressure they can tell when they're touched or not and transmit the signal to the rest of the plant um, so that's that's all very cool and the study is called pavement cells distinguish touch from letting go by alexander howell et al in published in nature plants um in the 15th of may so just like two weeks ago or something uh, I I have a paper that was also published on May the 15th. Is that a terrible segue? <laughs> um, and I also have another favorite plant. So, Yoram, could you play the theme song? <laughs> my favorite plant. So, my favorite plant this week also is amaranth. And it's not just my favorite plant this week, but it's something that we have talked about again before, also on the blog, because it's kind of a very cool plant. So, amaranth is something that you might have heard of. You might have seen it even in the supermarket, because it's one of those pseudo cereals that came into global attention a few years back as being yeah it's a superfood right like there we go so you, can, you can get like amaranth like bars and and in your in your cereals and in all kinds of ways because it's like healthy and full of antioxidants maybe is i don't know what the, what the current claim is what they can all do but they're like one of the magic grains that better than than wheat or the conventional stuff that you can eat so um 
It's really yeah, cool. it has apparently lots of protein, amino acids, lysine, lysine, which is not so common, lots of fiber, magnesium, calcium, iron, things like that. So super grainy. Um, it's it's been used like as an important source of nutrition in North Central and Southern America, sort of for where it was originated from, for thousands of years. Um, and it's it's had lots of uses. So it's it's also previously been used as things like for dyeing, um, as well as also obviously it's edible and amaranth the amaranthus is actually just a genus and there's you know about 70 species within that genus so when i'm saying it's my favorite plant i'm using this in the very broad term of this is a cool genus um but it also has a really cool feature which makes it i don't know cool to me but kind of means that for a lot of people amaranth if you talk about it it's that it's a pest yeah so, yeah I, I just remember that like old story that we had about the pigweed which is this kind of amaranth um that's like resistant to glyphosate because it, it just like makes a ton of the protein that's targeted by glyphosate so it just outcompetes it so it's just like making a lot of it so I, that's that's a pest definitely that's that's a problem for lots of people yeah, so exactly that. So there's one of the species of amaranth, which is called Amaranthus palmeri, um, or palmer's pigweed. And it makes a really amazing weed. It grows really quickly. It's very competitive. And it basically just gets in there, grows, and reduces, obviously, the yield of the things that you want to be growing, which are other crops. Um, they worked out that you can, of course, kill amaranth. One of the easy ways you can do that is by, yeah, spraying Roundup, which what Yara mentioned, it's it's glyphosate. And that would kill the amaranth um, until it didn't. So at one stage, they realized that they were spraying and the amaranth wasn't dying. And in 2005, people started to report that pigweed had become resistant to glyphosate in different states across the USA. Um, and then it basically moved up a level and became not just a weed, but a super weed. And this super weed sort of has spread throughout the country as far as being present um, everywhere. And basically what they found in the end is that it has this really special way of getting around the glyphosate. So the glyphosate inhibits a certain enzyme um, and the enzyme is necessary. If you don't have the, the enzyme, you can't make a certain type of amino acid, which is an essential building block for, block for making proteins. Um, so glyphosate basically blocks that in plants. Um, by the way, animals don't have that same pathway, so it's, it's not necessary for us. Um, but the amaranth basically just outcompetes the poison. So it has decided to make different copies. So the, it, it duplicates the copies of this enzyme so that when the glyphosate, and then just makes a ton of the, the, the enzyme itself. So when the glyphosate tr comes to try to block it, there's just so much of the enzyme that basically it outcompetes the poison and it doesn't die. Um, which is really really cool and the way it does this is by not having lots of copies scattered throughout the genome of the amaranth um like the nuclear genome of the amaranth itself but instead it has these sort of free circles of dna which are hanging out and these are sort of floating in the nucleus um and just can make tons of themselves and tons of copy of this enzyme so Really cool story, these circular bits of DNA floating around, making a ton of an enzyme to get around a pretty clever poison, honestly. Um, so that's already a very cool story. 
Um, <laughs> that we've like talked about on the blog. That we've talked about. The um, and then a couple of days ago, one of my friends actually sent me a paper that came out in plant physiology. Um, yeah, as I said, just a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, no, I think I know that story already. I, I It's extra chromosomal circular DNA mediated, sp- mediated spread of herbicide resistance in pigweed. And I was like, no, I, I know about this story. But the mix is here that it's in interspecific hybrids of pigweed as part of the title. So what they've found is that they can get F1 hybrids of different species of amaranthus. Um, So in this case, they had amaranthus tuberculatus with the palmeri. And they can find that these F1 generations also contain these ECC DNAs, which means that they're not only passing it on to their offspring in the same species but it's now effectively kind of crossing these species species border so yeah they saw pollen mediated transfer of this um, extra chromosomal dna um, in the experimental hybrids from this susceptible species um, and the resistant species oh that's that's like scary stuff right like when that means that such a resistance can spread to more species and like more species can become pests and like where one of the most common ways to get rid of that species is suddenly not working anymore and you have to use something else other than glyphosate if you want to get rid of that pest i would say it's a very clever amaranthus if we want to put something on the on the plants being intelligent no but i mean realistically i'm guessing so these are sibling species right so it's not like this is going to be passed from this guy into a tomato or i mean this is like yeah but you can get like another like a different thing other than the pigweed suddenly overgrowing in your field when you want to grow i don't know commercial amaranth and then you have this thing in between or you want to grow a different grain and then you have like the pigweed and now it's sort of sister species as well being resistant Mm. Might be fine though. <laughs> Might be fine as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure like what the, the other features of this species would be, but I would say like, is it like it's going to be if it's genetically similar enough to have this this hybrids forming? Actually, I'm not sure if the hybrids are even like true hybrids in in that they're um fertile. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if it's close enough, then probably whatever you're going to use to try and get rid of the the palmeri you're anyway going to use to get i'm not sure like does it have different features which make you make it harder to kill it doesn't have teeth or anything uh yeah yeah but it's just like glyphosate is a very easy way to kill plants and uh at scale and if you can't use that anymore then you have to use other things like more mechanical removal manual removal hot soap foam like all of these things that people use now when, when they can't use glyphosate that just like are much more labor or time or um, fuel intensive. Um, the, the sibling species is called rough fruit amaranth. So this one might have particularly rough fruit in case that's <laughs> a bigger threat. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I have to say, I'm not sure what this means as far as any increased threat. I mean, I, I think it's yeah. cool. It's cool from the plant's point of view, what Definitely. the plant is doing, um, but I'm not sure. It, yeah, you're right. It might be very, very uncool from our point of view, but I haven't really... Do you know by any chance that. 
if that like extra chromosomal DNA thing um, is found for other things in plants. Like I've, I only know about the pigweed that's doing that. Uh, but it's it, it's something like like bacteria do that all the time, and they're like on the other end, sort of on the complexity scale of of life, um, and they just have like these plasmids, these circles of DNA that they can actually transmit to other bacteria as well, and therefore like sharing resistance genes and stuff. Um, and I just wonder if like if if that's something special to amaranth, or if that's also in like other plants. I just did a quick Google because I also don't know much about it and it says it's fairly common in other species, including in plants, but it's been a largely neglected field of study. Okay. That's a 2022 review. I'll put the link on the, the show notes. I have uh, from, 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 from pigweed, I have something about like stinknet, another pest, an invasive plant in this, uh, this case. Stingweed is a plant that's native to South America and... Now it's found also like in places like California where it's non-native and quite invasive. It makes like each flower makes hundreds of seeds. So it's very hard to get rid of because it grows very quickly and spreads far and wide with its seeds. And in this study, they looked at um, what happens when you have areas that are burned in a controlled fashion and uh, what happens to the ecosystems afterwards and they found that when and in like controlled burned areas you often find like patches of the stingnet plant that remains they are sort of less likely to get burned i don't know exactly why but maybe because they grow so dense it's like has a higher humidity content burns not as easily as like the dry understory that that they usually try to burn so often these controlled burns are used to kill off invasive plants like invasive grasses when they get dry they burn them off as a very fast and efficient way to get rid of them but these stinknet plants they don't burn as easily as the dry grass and so they remain and so now you have this island of stinknet uh, uh, plants that makes tons and tons of seeds and um, there is suddenly no more competition around them because it's like freshly burned soil there's no more other plants there so they spread even more in this area and apparently they also have uh, ways of suppressing the growth of other plants so they try to combat that with gr like actively planting native plants in the in the freshly burned areas but they sort of get overgrown and uh, outcompeted by this invasive species and the end result is just like you shouldn't stop burning um, like using these controlled burns because they're very efficient and good ways to sort of control the ecosystems there. But instead that you have to do like additional measures against the stink net as well. Like you have to do the burn first and then you have to find these islands and then you have to kill the stink net there as well to stop it from spreading even more. And that's the main takeaway from this like uh, report that's called prescribed burning may produce refugia for invasive forb uh, oncosiphon pilu. Uh, Pilulifer um, published in Restoration Ecology um, not long ago in the beginning of April um, so yeah so burning is not enough sometimes you have to like go in with another way of killing some plants and some invasive plants I feel like a lot of our facts today are how to kill the plants <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, like how they die how to kill them how they die and we've also like talked in the past about like the like what what is the problem of an invasive species like sometimes it's very actively harmful to local ecosystems and in this case they say uh, it can change the soil um, a microbiome that makes it then less attractive for native plants and it then can lead to 
like a change in the ecosystem and that can in the end like even lead to a failure of the ecosystem and then you would even emit like fig like bound carbon in the soil when it all decomposes when there's no like proper plant ecosystem growing on it anymore um, that can then release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere which is quite bad so they very actively try to manage that plant but in other cases yeah um I think we discussed it in like the plant book club and then also like tangentially here like it's 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 a man-made like distinction between invasive and non and, and native or native and non-native plants because at one point we draw a line and like everything that's before that is native and everything after that is non-native and like plants spread all the time so it's really hard like it's a it's an ongoing discussion in the field like in in ecology um where should you draw the lines is it like in in north america it's like before the western settlers arrived they they say everything before that is native everything after that is non-native like that's that's been introduced there um but it's sort of a weird distinction because you could also say is it before the first human arrived there or is it when the industrial time started or when trade started it's it's really fuzzy but i think i think that's true for stuff when you're going backwards so i think like you can go further backwards and say oh but could this be considered nat- like invasive? But I think there's something. Like, I think there's, there's some things that are very clearly invasive, like they've come quite recently and they're destroying what we have from our point of view now. I mean, I know it's still a, a perspective thing, but I think there's a lot of there could be is that a false positive or a false negative? Then there's like very clearly invasive plants, and there's other things where you could be like, oh, but you could also call this invasive. But yeah. there's, there's some guys where it's like, yeah, obviously that's invasive. That's ob- like, it's literally called Stinknet. Like, obviously it's <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. It's not a good guy. Um, yeah. Although I know there is also the discuss- discussion now with like climate change and some species will expand their ranges into new ranges. And are they invading those ranges or are they just doing yeah, yeah. plant things? Yeah. What is adaptation? What is sort of like natural change in ecosystems? Because when we look at like historical records, we see that ecosystems have changed over time and some things, some plants died out and other plants came in. Um, and to figure out like what is sort of like healthy and what, what does even healthy mean? It's like, it's very complicated. I'm like quite happy that I'm not an ecologist that has to like figure that out because I think there are no like clear answers. You just have to like weigh different goals. You have to like, what is like the short-term goal of stability of this ecosystem? What is sort of a mid midterm or long-term goal in this ecosystem? Like, should we like rather let it decide and find stability for itself or should we actively manage it to arrive at a point that we think is stable and maybe is stable or isn't so yeah it's all it's all complicated okay but we all agree that the stinky plant should have got a better name if it didn't want to be removed yeah, yeah it's definitely the name is on the plant um <laughs> stink it's, must go. <laughs> it's not charismatic enough it has to go <laughs> Um, with that, shall, shall we do a cat fact or do you want anything else? Did you I, I don't have anything blah, else. Blah, 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 blah. I, I, I used all my powder. I used all your powder? Is that like, um, ich hab, ich hab mein pulver verschossen, is what we say in German. Is like, it like cocaine? Is, is no, cocaine your pulver? No, it's cheese pulver. It's it's uh, gunpowder. Like I used all my gunpowder, so I, I don't have any more anything left to shoot. It sounds very sexual. Because you make it sexual, it's it's like it's more. Sorry, I've it's, shot all my powder. 
I mean, we have um, lots and lots of disgusting sayings, but this one is a militaristic saying and not, sure you are, not a sure disgusting saying. Like, it's, it's problematic, in, problematic in different ways. Um, okay, I've lost my cat fact. I got so disgusted by the... <laughs> Your shoes... She's... What are you doing? She's no. over. Shooting at she's over. My gunpowder. Cat fact. Hi, I have a cat fact today, and my cat fact is not about a cat, but it's in fact about a catfish. Um, and it's not just a catfish, it's in fact a rainbow shimmering catfish. Um, and it kind of relates not only to cats, but also to some things that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is you know, one, of, one of our favorite niche topics, how things get colors when they don't really have colors. Yeah, I would I would guess just from the name um, that it's like one of these weird things that has physical properties that change the color. Like it's not like a, a dye or like a yeah anything <laughs> a pigment a pigment in there, but it's rather like some nanostructure that bends the light in a certain way and makes it look all fancy. That's the one. So this is actually um, a species that is called. Cryptoterras vitreolus. Um, all of you out there are glad to know that I pronounce the animal names just as badly as the plant names. It's all the same in Latin or Greek or whatever that is. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's both, Yoram. Um, this is. Did I tell you that I found out that bear bear is like the the scientific name for bear is just bear bear. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, not surprised. I think there's lots of things that are called like this, isn't there? Although canis canem or something like dog dog. Yeah. Okay. So like rat is like ratus ratus, but that just is the same word twice. But bear is ursus arctos, and it's just bear in one language and then bear in the other language. <laughs> and my theory is that when you see a, a brown bear coming at you, like, oh my god, bear, bear, and like it's now called bear bear because people just kept on screaming bear bear. When it, okay, enough about that. Anyway, <laughs> what's the cat fact? Um, so there's this cat, and it's actually a catfish. And it's a rainbow catfish, but it's also a transparent ghost catfish. So this is kind of the mystery of the fish. It's that when you look at it, it's almost see-through. Like they have this really translucent body. So it's basically like a, a wisp of a ghost. I mean, it's a ghost fish. It's a ghost fish going through the water. But then depending on how the light hits it and its movements, it suddenly becomes this very bright, shiny rainbow color. And there was a paper that came out in PNAS in the middle of March, so a little while ago now. Um, and it, they just showed that this is in fact what we've discussed before, which is structural colors in the use of reflection. And in this case, they have muscle fibers, um, which work to give this diffraction of the light um, and depending on how the fish relax their muscles and contract their muscles as they swim you get this um, iridescence and it sort of almost like flickers depending on the the relaxation contraction and the angle that the fish is swimming in i yeah i'm, I'm just looking at pictures and they're, they're like the best halloween fish because they just look like a bunch of floating fish skeletons because they have like the head and the spine and the rest is completely transparent and so there's a, like on Wikipedia, there's a group of glass cut catfish schooling. So just like a swarm is what I would call call it. Um, and you just have like lots of floating heads with spines and nothing else you can really distinguish there. So it's like great Halloween fish. Um, but yeah. Beautiful, but, no? Yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really beautiful. 
And I just realized that I don't understand what cat... Like, I thought catfishes are, like, these big... And, like, when you click on catfish, like, they look very different from these, like, weird glass catfish. I don't understand uh, how they friend, are related. This is why we don't use common names. I think they're not related at all. I think you're thinking of the ones that Bear Girl gets his hand bitten off to catch, like this one yeah. where you... It's a different fish. A very different fish. Yeah, but why are they having the same name? <laughs> I don't know. This one also has some whiskers. I think the, the catfish, somebody sees a fish with whiskers and they're like, what? That's a fish with whiskers. That's not a fish. That's a catfish. And so there's multiple fish that have whiskers and all these fish with whiskers just got called catfish. That's my guess. Oh, it's like the the order is called catfishes. Like the order of Ziluriformis. Um, they're, all, they're the catfish order. And then you have like tons of families and genesis underneath that. Oh, so it's actually the same thing as the catfish that we know, the big yeah. catfish. Yeah, according to like my like, my understanding of, of the systematic here. Um, but yeah, so it means that like very different things. <laughs> like on the Wikipedia page for catfish, for all the pictures of like literal fish in the water. And at one point it just turns like cooked fish and you have like all of like different dishes of <laughs> catfishes and so you have like the living fish above and then the cooked fish below <laughs> but anyway yeah that's 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 really cool um and i'm also now wondering if like whiskers only did whiskers only arise once in fish did whiskers <laughs> but yeah. that's a question for another day maybe yeah um yeah i'm like I don't know what I want to say about the, the, the physical colors. It's... I, I don't know. With, I the, just... <laughs> with the physical colors, I sometimes think like, yeah, it's very cool if we like figure this all out um, one by one. But at the same time, I'm not that surprised anymore. When I see like this iridescent effect, I'm like, I know that's not a pigment. I know there's like some weird thing that's having like a nanostructure and that bends the light in a way. So... Um, it doesn't make sense in the brain, though, does it? Yeah. Sorry, I just <laughs> started Googling. <laughs> Are whiskers, like, convergent evolution? Has it arisen more than once? And the answer, I mean, I'm looking at, like, answer.com or something terrible. And it's like, <laughs> no, they arose in early mammals. So it's actually, like, divergent from one common answer. But how do they explain the fish then? So that's wrong. And then <laughs> the other website... It was why a catfish called catfish, and they're like, it's not just because of the whiskers; they also make purring noises when you catch them, which I just don't think is true. <laughs> uh, all right, I think that's a really good point for us to end today's podcast on. It was definitely a little bit more chaotic than normal. Sorry about that, everyone who's listening still to us. Um, from. <laughs> Yeah, from here, if you want to read more chaos, we have the website. We've got a couple of links to some of the stories we mentioned today anyway in the show notes, but www.plantsandpipettes.com. Um, there's also Instagram and Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. There's Twitter and Mastodon. That's at Plants Pipettes on Twitter and at Plants and Pipettes at Mastodon. No, at podcast.social on Mastodon. Um, but yeah, uh, I... <laughs> I think from our lack of enthusiasm, you can tell that our social media presence is dwindling. Uh, but I have a feeling it's like all social media presences, but also discussion for another day. <laughs> you can. Uh, our opening closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And is there something else we always say? <laughs> no, that's it, Yara. Goodbye. <laughs>